You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. The fact that anyone managed to survive, honestly, is pretty astounding. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are so thrilled to welcome our dear friend, Elodie Harper, author of the Wolf Den Trilogy, back to the podcast. Hi, Elodie. <laughs> hey, it's so good to be with you guys. Oh, we're so happy to have you back. Yeah, it's so amazing to have you back. <laughs> oh, it's just, it's just lovely. <laughs> The Wolf Den Trilogy is one of our favorite works of historical fiction, and we are absolutely delighted to have Elodie back on to discuss the final installment, The Temple of Fortuna. Welcome, Elodie. Hey, I remember the last time we met, was it, it was um, for drinks outside the British Museum, so... Yeah! <laughs> it was. <laughs> so first, congratulations on the epic achievement of finishing your trilogy. What was the process like writing the final book? So it's every book has been quite different to write um, and had different challenges. And I think, you know, it was so it felt like such a privilege writing the last one because, you know, I knew that people were invested in the series and it's amazing to have support. That also does, though, then ramp up the pressure that you want to write a finale that is going to please people who've invested so much in your characters. You know, you want to write an ending that's going to satisfy people. So and I think as well, because this is the first book that is set in multiple locations before they've been, you know, really focused on Pompeii, which is, you know, an area that I've sort of researched very thoroughly and kind of lived and breathed for the past few years. So, you know, recreating ancient Rome in the time of Titus was quite daunting, actually. You know, it's it's intimidating to go to the Imperial Palace, I think. Um, it's it's a sort of different, a different look at the ancient world and one that's more, I suppose, you know, readers will have actually be more familiar with that and have read other versions of it. So I think, you know, I wanted to write my own version and for it to be historically accurate and also true to the vision of the book. So yeah, it was it was a different book to write. It had a very different feeling. And then of course, you know, it sticks much more closely to the historical record because it does cover the eruption and the letters of Pliny the Younger quite closely. So there was also, that was a departure for me too, in terms of some of the plot and uh, events and characterization was was already in existence because it is part of history, as opposed to, you know, with the Lupana, um, the brothel. Yes, you know, we have fragments of the women, but they were essentially wholly invented characters. 
That's definitely, I found that to be the, the case as well, like trying to write historical fiction and having my uh, first book is out on sub and I'm now looking at a second one. And the idea of putting it in a time period where I have to deal with all these famous historical characters that everyone knows is quite intimidating. <laughs> it is definitely intimidating. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'd already got Pliny as a character, but I think, you know, Pliny is not as famous as, say, an emperor. You know, he's quite a niche interest. I love Pliny and I love the natural history, but, you know, he's not like ultra famous in terms of popular culture, I wouldn't say. You know, it's not like writing about Julius Caesar or um, Augustus or something. You know, he's still he's still a fairly nerdy interest as opposed to mainstream. Yeah, you have like a little more freedom to do with him what you like. Yeah, we, we know less about him as well. So, you know, that's that's very appealing to me as well. And there are a lot of gaps. There's a lot of space that you can fill. And the particular emperors that you're sort of like, you're people who know, I'm not going to spoil any history, but people who know some of the characters they're going to see in this, um, particularly Domitian, will just be getting a little like, oh, I see what's going to happen here. Well, this is it. People who know the history will know after the books what happens as well in terms of emperors um so that kind of puts a whole different slant on what may or may not have happened to amara and the different choices that she faced so when the novel starts amara is in rome and she has become quite the political power player as a highly placed courtesan what was it like writing about the shark tank that was ancient rome and how did it differ from writing about pompeii so i think you know We've got Suetonius, we've got Cassius Dio, we've got, you know, ancient writers who wrote quite a lot about the intrigue, the shark tank of imperial life. So I guess, first of all, there's just a lot more that we know, but it's also a lot less authentic in the sense that, you know, Suetonius is not a historian in the way we would understand a historian. You know, he, likely a lot of it's just pure invention you know it's closer to a novel than history I guess in certain aspects you know they just kind of recount what people said and some of it may have been true some of it might have been invented whereas with Pompeii I was kind of looking at an archaeological site and drawing my own interpretations from that but the site kind of does exist as it is so I guess that was the first thing it's I was very conscious that in choosing to take Suetonius or Cassius Dio's idea of what Titus or Domitian were like, what their courts were like, how they behaved, who their lovers were, etc. I was taking a very partial view. You know, I'm aware that, you know, revisionist historians might look at those figures differently. But I decided to just completely go with the flow in terms of the ancient historians. So that was, I guess that was a change. They're very larger than life. The stuff that happened seems pretty outrageous and out there, you know, with all the emperors. And a lot of it was very outrageous and out there. But, you know, it was likely very embellished, too. So I was conscious of that as well. But, you know, it was it was really nice and interesting for me to write Amara in that setting. Imagine how she would react, how she would interact with another courtesan and to have a relationship. So she has a relationship with another courtesan, Saturia, who's an, a wholly fictional character. But it's quite different from any of the female friendships in the other books. It's a much more shark-like relationship on behalf of both of them so that was yeah that was something different to do and I enjoyed that and much more diverse because you have so many different accounts in the archaeological record of how people live not just Pliny's account of what happened during the eruption which is an amazing source we we did an episode on on the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and we we used that 
quite a lot. But, you know, when you get to look at Pompeii, you get to see this snapshot, this crystallization of like a a life um, and everyone who lived in that life. Whereas, you know, when you have just that one amazing source, you don't get the same things. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a mixture of both. So I would say as far as Pliny the Younger's letters, that made it a lot easier. But then we only have one source. So, you know, when you're juggling multiple sources and you won't manage to read potentially all of them. Yeah, I mean, it it, def- it definitely is a different style, I would say, of writing. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was definitely a departure for me. Whereas writing about Pompeii, you've got the graffiti, you've got the artwork, the kind of, the historical record is is much more open to interpretation, I guess, even though it's also more authentic. So it's a strange yeah, it's it's a strange balance that you have to strike, I think. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find it easier or harder to write historical fiction when you have a lot more source material? Like on the one hand, you have a lot more source material, but on the other hand, there's a lot more to conform to or not conform to. Yeah. And I think, you know, the whole thing with Pompeii, one of the reasons I find it so fascinating, it's not just from 79 AD. That's a town's whole history rather than just that one day, that one year. So it doesn't just exist the Pompeii of 79 AD. It's sort of multiple layers of history. So with the House of the Fawn, a lot of that would have been pretty ancient antique by the time the eruption went off. The, the historical record of Pompeii is also open to interpretation. So I really enjoyed sort of picking a side or a view as to what different things meant with that. So the fact that a lot of the marble was gone from the Forum or the Temple of Venus or the theatre, I chose to see that as the relief effort salvaging it and the rebuilding after the eruption might just have, as well have been people nicking it, could have been thieves, uh, could have been much later sort of hundreds of years later that might have been plundered you know one interpretation which i i didn't choose to go with is that pompeii was semi-ruined because of the earthquake well almost two decades ago before the eruption so there are multiple interpretations of of pompeii as well and i really enjoyed sort of choosing how i wanted to to see that i found that really interesting i found the whole sort of history of the relief effort after the eruption very fascinating to look at what do we know about the relief efforts at the time? I'm so fascinated by this because we, we have covered the eruption itself in a lot of detail, but not the aftermath. So what do we know about where people went and how they were received and um, what the official government response was? So the official government response for saying, you know, this was almost 2000 years ago was was actually surprisingly modern or impressive in scope in that, you know, there was a major relief effort. We don't have lots and lots of practical details about what it entailed. We know that the Emperor Titus visited a couple of times to sort of oversee the relief effort. And, you know, potentially as a kind of morale boosting exercise, uh, the way modern presidents or, or, or world leaders might visit the scene of a natural disaster. The financial investment into the rebuilding was was considerable. People who died without heirs 
uh, in the eruption, that wealth, that money was plowed back into the rebuilding. We know a lot of freed people inherited money from like their dead patrons. So it was a chance for people to move up the social ladder in a way that they probably wouldn't have been able to do if there hadn't been the eruption. We know that many, many people survived. So there are epigraphs in Naples and uh, Putili, um, as it was then, you know, that show they were from families of Pompeii and, and Herculaneum. I did fill in quite a lot of uh, gaps. Oh, and also we know that, you know, former consuls were appointed to oversee this. So it, it, it came right from the top, the idea of this being a sort of high priority, a high priority action by the state at that time. There's a lot of stuff about the immediate aftermath that we don't know. So because we know that Pliny dispatched pretty much the entire fleet right across the bay to try and rescue people, I imagine the Roman army and the fleet playing quite a major role in the relief effort. Um, I imagined, you know, refugee camps being built. I used poetic license as to where I imagined that refugee. And also the speed which it went up. I mean, the Roman army was very impressive with their military encampments. Maybe I... Maybe I over-egged that slightly. Uh, but, you know, that's also the joy of writing fiction. You you do want a, a plot. But, you know, a lot of people would have just flooded the nearby towns and how they were received, you know, is really open to interpretation. How are refugees received today? Some people are very welcoming, many are not. You know, that was something that I portrayed as well. We know that even 300 years later, a, a district of Neapolis, as it was then uh, known now, Naples, was was named after Herculaneum. So, you know, that also suggests that survivors clustered together into new communities. So I, I found all of that quite fascinating. And also just the extraordinary sense of you are walking about a town that has potentially been your home your whole life, or even if it's like Amara, your home for, for part of your life. And then it's it's not just destroyed, it's absolutely gone. It has ceased to exist. That as a concept, I think, is, is really strange and would have been a profound trauma for the Roman world as a whole. Because if we think of, you know, any country today, if a whole town disappeared, even if it was a town in your country that you'd never visited or had family or relations, that that is still, you know, it's, it's a profound shock socially, I think. And so I also was interested in reading, you know, some of the writers like Marshall, who wrote in the immediate aftermath about their kind of grief of what had been lost. Um, and just the change to the landscape, you know, Pliny in the natural history writes about Campania and the fertile vines and all the rest of it. And that would have been destroyed for, a, you know, a very long time by the toxic ash and, and everything else. So it would have, yeah, I guess I found all those things extremely interesting to think about in terms of a work of fiction and also perhaps less well known and covered than, than the eruption. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is this is a, a part of the history that I didn't know anything about when I started reading your book. And a lot of it made a lot of sense in terms of, as you said, what we see happening to refugees today and how they're received and um, potentially the history. But it was just fascinating to think about, yeah, there would have been a major refugee crisis. This would have been a big deal. It would have been written down. Yeah. And it would have been a struggle for the surviving towns to accommodate so many people, you know, and maybe they were living in kind of tent cities for a very, very long time. Whilst, you know, there were massive rebuilding efforts that went up, as I say, particularly at Neapolis and Putili, you know, like major infrastructure, major roads, which would also have been a way of boosting jobs and prosperity in the region too. you know, massive infrastructure, 
projects since the dawn of time, you know, kind of generate wealth, as well as costing a lot of money um, and generate jobs and all the rest of it. But that would have taken quite a long, a long time. So, you know, who knows how long people were living as sort of refugees in that part of the world. Do we know anything about attempts to build or to rebuild in Pompeii itself? Were there any? So there don't appear to have been, which is, you know, given how ingenious the Romans were, the sites were incredibly dangerous. So they would have been pretty toxic for a fairly long time after the eruption and pretty hot, but also just incredibly dangerous to enter. So one of the things that I found very interesting is that one of the most tragic aspects of of Pompeii are the human remains. I haven't ever, you know, posted online or I didn't even take any photographs of, of the plaster casts because they're quite confronting and quite uncomfortable, I think, because real people we're looking at. And unlike sort of a skeleton, this is giving you a sense of their trauma as well as their death. You know, so I know they are historically incredibly useful for archaeologists and, and people studying the eruption. But for me personally, as a novelist, I they make me quite uncomfortable. But one of the things that is interesting is that some of the human remains in Pompeii, we do not know if they were victims of the eruption or if they were salvagers and thieves who tried to go in but were crushed by tunnels collapsing or whatever. I mean, it was it was phenomenally dangerous to go back in um, and is probably why, you know, so much of it is there, uh, just because it was really hard. There are holes in various walls of houses and it says house tunneled through is the graffiti. And that is either you know either thieves who were kind of working like gangs or it might have been people who actually lived in Pompeii trying to get their belongings back or it might have been part of a kind of semi-official relief effort given they tried to use a lot of the wealth in the rebuilding of Pompeii you know perhaps more kind of official salvaging parties went in as part of that um, in the same way that they stripped the marble from the forum and the temple of Venus and the theater etc. That's so fascinating. So people were actually trying to tunnel back into the houses that were buried in the lava at one point. They were. I mean, for many centuries, you know, we don't know the timescale, whether it was direct survivors, whether it was people who, you know, were aware that the town was there. You know, we don't know exactly who it was that was tunneling back. Most likely a mix of all of that. But Pompeii wasn't buried in lava, right? It's very. It was buried in a pyroclastic flow. I just want to be clear. Sorry, the volcano nerd in me needs to be very clear. It was buried in a pyroclastic flow and pumice. It was very hot ash and, as you say, toxic gases. Thank you for clarifying, Jen. (laughs) I definitely picture lava all the time, but yes. (laughs) There was fire and there was lightning and like a kind of thunderstorm. But yeah, the the actual sort of lava flows were not a thing. Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters, with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard, It's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So everything in the trilogy has been leading to this final installment. I was so happy to get to read an early copy. You can't set a novel in Pompeii, particularly in the 70s AD, and not include the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. 
What was it like working in such a huge historical event, including covering the eruption? Like when I covered it for the podcast, I was a very practical, scientific volcano nerd. What, what was it about this that you wanted to capture in particular in your novel and in your trilogy? Well, I guess the one thing I'd say about the eruption that I tried to do differently was like capture the chaos of it because it's very easy when we look back retrospectively we know what's happening but the people who were there wouldn't have done so that was something that I wanted to capture you know I always knew the eruption was going to happen in the final book but truly for the wolf den I completely forgot about it it was just I sometimes forgot there was a volcano in in the vicinity because you know so you're just like everyone else living there really (laughs) yeah exactly and to be honest, you know, the, the aspect of Pompeii that fascinates me most is what it was like as a living town and the evidence that we have of how people lived there. That that really, really fascinates me. So in certain respects, I guess I slightly dreaded the idea of the eruption because that wasn't the draw for me for writing about Pompeii in the first place. But equally, I feel it would potentially be a bit odd to write a trilogy. The volcano would feature by its absence, even if you don't include it, you know, so either you could set it hundreds of years before the eruption, or you know that it's going to erupt at some point. And that to me is quite unsatisfying as a reader, if you know, like a huge cataclysm is going to happen to your characters, but you've just not written about it, that, that wouldn't be very fulfilling. Equally, I didn't want it to be the end point of the trilogy, because that feels like a cop out, because you've got all these characters story arcs that you want to fulfill and you know they all died at the end oh dear is not you know not satisfying yeah and there are many books about Pompeii that do that and that's one of the things that I love about your book is it doesn't do that like the eruption is there it's very much it's been building up to this but that's not what this book is necessarily about and I found that so refreshing because you know it's you know it's Chekhov's volcano the volcano is there it's got to go off and either you save it till the very end and everyone dies or you get to tell a completely different kind of story. And I loved what you did. Thank you. Yeah, no, I wanted to make the aftermath just as important as the eruption, you know, and in terms of the character development, even more important. So, yes, I did want to take a slightly different look uh, at the eruption. And the other thing, like, I find it really interesting that you are a kind of volcano nerd. And I think that's really important when you're looking for, when you're looking at the, at the eruption in a more distant way. But in some respects, I steered away from that on purpose and really, really focused on Pliny and the ancient view of it because the people of the time would not have had access to that information. And so what I wanted to capture in the way that I wrote about the eruption was just obviously using what we know about what it was like, but to look more at Pliny for how people were feeling, you know, what they said. So, you know, his descriptions of people calling on the gods and the fear on the road as they were fleeing and just the sense of absolute chaos and confusion. People had no clue what was happening. You know, Pliny himself, like one of the great nature writers of all time, was just like, oh, it's an interesting cloud. I love Pliny so much. I love Pliny as well. Like, I'll never do it because it'd be just too random. But but in an alternative life, I write books just about Pliny being nerdy, not doing very much, (laughs) looking at plants. But um, they they didn't know what was happening. And to have been caught up in it in Pompeii or one of, you know, or Stabii or any of these, or or Sorrentum, which was further away, would have suffered dreadfully from the earthquakes. It, it would just have been deeply terrifying and confusing. And so that was that was the element that I wanted to catch. So you feel very out of control when you read those sections. Like it's just chaos. It's a crush. Everyone's trying to leave. Some people 
but also to try and explain why some people didn't leave. That was really crucial to me. So when certain characters <laughs> make the decision to leave, you know, others decide to stay. And honestly, writing that section, I was like, I think I might have tried to wait it out. Yeah, we did a Choose Your Own Adventure episode about could you survive Pompeii? And I looked at the people who stayed, the people who tried to go by boat, the people who went uh, north or south. And one of the things that was super important in that episode for me was explaining why people might have wanted to wait it out. One of those things we always think is like, we're always assuming everyone knows what's going on that, you know, you would you would be smart enough to go. And it's like, but you might not, you might be with people who can't go. And also like the air was toxic. There were many people who could not even breathe and it was dangerous. Like they were flying projectiles. No. And, you know, you would potentially be like, oh my God, I'm going to wait for this to pass and shelter at home. You know, you're not going to think a pyroclastic flow is going to come and incinerate everyone. You'd think, well, if it's a question of falling debris and, you know, ash, I'm going to close all the windows. I'm going to stay in my house. You know, that's, that's a fairly sensible option if you don't, know how volcanoes work the majority of people are thought to have survived or a lot of people must have perished not in the town but trying to escape because you know there just aren't so many remains so I think the the northward path was the more viable one if I hadn't obviously been writing about Pliny (laughs) that's what I would have picked but I had to have characters congregate in Stabiae um, which is where Pliny ended up So that's where I had people going. And then we know that Pliny's companions managed to get far enough away from Stabiae on foot to survive. And so, you know, I imagine that being as far away as Sorrentum. But, you know, again, I kind of didn't get so so into the kind of intricacies of what the viable pathways were at at that point. Um, Because, again, I wanted to create this sense of, of confusion. So, you know, they don't take the main road, but also, you know, the landscape would have been changing. It might have been very hard to see or understand where you were going, particularly with it being dark. That's the thing, that the landscape is changing all around you and it is dark and there are flaming projectiles coming down from the sky at you. Yeah, if anything, I could have made it even more terrifying. I just can't imagine how horrendous it The fact that anyone managed to survive, honestly, is pretty astounding, given, you know, the temptation must have been to just take cover and hide. I was going to say, as Elodie said, like the Southern Road is where they found the most pe- archaeologists have found the most people who didn't make it. I think a lot of people went that way. And as we talked about in our episode, the Northern Road actually was the, was the better, more uh, stable, more um, built up road between Pompeii and Naples. But it literally went right past the volcano. And that road only would have been viable until I think the first pyroclastic flow hit Herculaneum, which they reckon is around two o'clock in the afternoon so you had to get through that yeah the southern road was viable for a lot longer but there were a lot of there would have been a lot of obstacles on the southern road which I tried you know I did try to cover you know the kind of idea of landslides and uh, collapsing you know the debris all of that that would have made the road very hard to pass yeah and also with Pliny the Younger again and his account we We've got Pliny and, and Pomponianus and, and everybody taking shelter in the house in Stabiae to wait it out. And the only thing that drives them out is the earthquake and the fact that the house is filling up with ash and pumice and they're going to be buried alive or the house is going to collapse. So that's the only reason they really left. If they'd left a bit earlier, they would have been further away from the from the pyroclastic flow, which 
is arguably what hit at a more distant, because when Pliny the Younger talks about the smell of sulfur and the, the hot air, it's arguable that was a pyroclastic flow, one of the many pyroclastic flows, but not as severe by the time it got to that stage. Because they think that once once it crossed the River Sarno out of Pompeii, the river itself would have cooled it down. Jen and I, um, we covered the death of Pliny um, on the Patreon as well. And just the um, the image of this man kind of coming in and projecting, being so committed to projecting calm and keeping everybody calm that he sweeps in like he's just visiting on a regular Tuesday, takes a bath, takes a very long nap or sleep. And then it's been hours. Like, you know, and some people would argue that he was foolish. I mean, and this is why kind of my construction of the, the character of Pliny in two previous books, you know, I was knowing that Pliny downplayed it to that extent is both very brave and very foolish at the same time. It's also the thing that was so strange writing that section was I felt very proprietorial about Pliny by that stage. Like my version of him is my version that I feel very kind of emotionally attached to. And yet, of course, I constructed that version out of these letters, you know, even though I was writing five years prior to these events. And, um, you know, the two companions that Pliny is with at the shore that are just named as slaves in the official account, I made them specific characters from my book. Uh, So those two people play an integral role. They're not nameless slaves. Yeah, I mean, Pliny is a personality I do find endlessly fascinating. And his uh, authorial voice in the natural history is really, really interesting to me, too. I, I just think he's quite an unusual Roman writer in many ways. And he sounds like he was a profoundly unusual man. What I was going to say about him, too, is, again, I find the count of his evening he sent, he spent in the villa in Stabiae so fascinating because, like, part of it is, is he's trying to project calm. He's endlessly curious, but also, like, he's got the power. Like, he's he's got a soldier's fortitude and all that kind of stuff, and he's got this leader mentality. And one of the things that is a detail that Pliny the Younger throws in is, is you know, he was very overweight at this point in his life. And I'm like, it's very possible that as much as he's trying to project calm, he might also have really been suffering from that long journey, breathing, and everything else. That might have been why they heard him snoring. He might have just been actually really struggling. So I do think like as much as it's like, oh, he had this really long nap. It's like he might not have been able to control that after the exertion of the day. Um, He might have had to rest. And that is, again, one of those reasons people chose to stay in places that were not safe. Number one, they didn't know they weren't safe. But number two, like he may have had some health problems like and being in that air, that air is incredibly dry. It's devoid of moisture. To me, it's amazing he made it as far as he did, because that kind of thing would have been it would have been like breathing in hot soup without any humidity. Like it just those gases take all the moisture out of the air. Yeah, horrific. And people would have been very sick. You know, I didn't go into as much of it as I could have done in the novel because I was so concerned with the plot. But, you know, it is it is pretty horrifying to think about the sort of physical effect on the body of being in that much toxic gas for that long. Really, the sort of youngest and strongest would have survived. You know, the impact on children's pretty horrible to think about as well. You know, it's, yeah, the whole thing is just, I think that's one of the reasons I, I put off writing about it until book really wasn't really what I wanted to happen to all these people. <laughs> and that I will think about what happened to the real people. 
But at the same time, you know, it is a massive historical event. And I think it's not that it lessens the suffering, because actually that's the sort of drum I've been banging for the last few years, is that, you know, the suffering then was as real to them as, as suffering is to us now, you know, particularly in the context of enslavement or the way women were treated. But I do think that when something has taken place so long ago, well out of living memory by many, many generations, you know, it feels less awful to write about it um, because you have got that distance. When we had our Pompeii episode, you know, I quoted extensively from one of Pliny's letters, not the one about his uncle, the one more about his own firsthand experience and account of what he saw. And by his uncle, just to clarify for people who might be confused, Pliny the Elder is the one who went with the ships to Stabiae to rescue people. Pliny the Younger is the one who documented it. The nephew is a very minor character in the books, um, in, my, in my books. And Pliny, when we talk about Pliny, I'm, I'm talking about the elder Pliny, but Pliny the Younger who wrote the account was his nephew. Yes, he was at Mycenaeum documenting everything. And the account that Pliny the Younger wrote particularly of his own experience and not of his uncle's experience. There are two different letters that he wrote. He wrote his friend Tacitus for the explicit purpose that Tacitus would memorialize this and make sure that it would never be forgotten, which I'm just like, oh, that killed me when I read that. Um, But the interesting thing that I found about it and and why I quoted so extensively from it was because everything he's describing feels so visceral and so real and so very much now in what's happening in our world, you can really feel that. And I think a lot of times, You do have the distance of thousands of years and you think sometimes like, well, that was a long time ago. But then you read these words and it makes you feel exactly as if you were there or what it would feel like if that happened today. And I think that your book does that so well and it's so important to remember that. Yes. I mean, I didn't want to imply that there's a distance in the writing in the book or how I felt about the characters. I guess, you know, as a writer, I'm conscious, which stories do I have a right to tell? And so I guess, you know, a more modern natural disaster, I wouldn't feel comfortable writing about purely because it could affect people who had been impacted by it. Um, So I guess that's what I meant about it being further away. And I guess similarly, you know, with writing about Roman slavery, where who knows which of our ancestors were enslaved now, you know, and it doesn't have any kind of impact on any of our lives today. Who knows which of our ancestors were enslaved by the Romans? Yeah. By the Romans. Yes. Well, that's what I was going to say. And that is a huge difference from more recent forms of slavery. And so in terms of feeling okay to write about Roman enslavement, that is a totally different thing from if, you know, I were to approach writing about more recent forms of enslavement, which is, if not quite in living memory, certainly within within living impact, you know, the impact of that form of slavery is is hugely powerful today in a way that the slavery of antiquity absolutely isn't. So we don't know among us which of our ancestors back in antiquity may have been enslaved, but many people today know absolutely that their ancestors were enslaved. And so that, to me, I guess that's what I mean about the natural disaster, writing about something so long ago, that's what I mean about the distance. Would you survive Pompeii? Um, when we did that episode, there was this one detail about the people piled up at, at the gate to Stabii, like the southern gate. And um, there were, you know, bodies of people found who had been trying to escape. 
And one of the bodies had been found quite late, and they had tried to leave quite late, so they had been kind of climbing over these piles and piles of pumice, and they had fractured their leg in several places, and it seemed like they had done that being outside, and that kind of really just drove home how dangerous it was to leave. We were talking about why people didn't leave. And I was just wondering, were there any small sort of human details like that that you came across that surprised you that you weren't expecting when you were covering this? So, I, you know, I do write about the crush at the Stavian Gate, but obviously very early on in the eruption when it's still passable. But, you know, you get a sense that that is going to become more and more impossible as time goes on. I think, you know, it was the detail of thinking about who stayed and who who didn't stay, I guess. I, I suppose, so I suppose surprised isn't, isn't quite the term. I guess the fact that the damage was so widespread, so all the way in Sorrentum, there was a lot of damage and that we've got a, a plaque you know, a Roman plaque in in modern day Sorrento commemorating the town clock that was repaired um, because of the earthquake with the eruption. Yeah, I guess the degree to which the earthquakes was so much a part of it rather than we think about the eruption as being a volcano. But but I I think the eruption itself less so uh, because that was less the main focus. For me, the sort of surprising stuff was more about the relief effort. Should we talk a little bit about um, the gladiatorial aspect, Jen? Yeah, I want to talk about Britannica. She's obviously one of my favorite feisty redheaded warriors, shocker. And it was uh, it was good to hear she's living her best life as a gladiator. What was it like sort of researching the role of female gladiators? What research were you able to find um, about them and writing about her? So, um, you know, we don't know that much about female gladiators. So that was kind of a bonus <laughs> in the sense I could make stuff up. But, you know, the, the, I think the records that we have, you know, we've got, um, I think it's Suetonius uh, or Cassius Dio, I can't remember which of them, writing about Domitian having female gladiators, you know, fighting dwarves as a kind of novelty act, you know, and, and I, I think Juvenal writes about women fighting as a kind of novelty act as well. So you get the sense that they were kind of sneered at. Equally, though, we have inscriptions in Ostia, which show, you know, women put each other to the sword in fights. And that's not kind of portrayed or advertised as a novelty act more, or at least not as something laughable. It's not a joke. It's a novelty in that it's unusual, but it's, you know, this is very serious stuff. Um, There's also one relief in modern day Turkey showing two women fighters, which again is kind of played quite straight. They're very much not a joke. Um, and they, they've got their kind of stage names, Amazonia and, and Achillea. We also know that certain types of fighting, so the, the net man was considered quite effeminate. I think he's the Retiarius, right? Retiarius, yes. Sorry, I called it net man in the books to translate for people. But, but you know, we know that that was considered quite an effeminate gladiatorial role that you, you know, you had a padded tunic and a great long trident and a net as opposed to being like very manly with a short sword and a, and a shield. And a short skirt. <laughs> and a short skirt. <laughs> when I imagine Britannica as a gladiator, you know, I, that seemed like a logical role for her to play the retiarius or the, the net woman or net man. And I, in seeing, you know, how people respond to her, I kind of did a mix of, you know, are people partly mocking but then how are women responding to watching a woman fight? And that, for me, was what made that scene when we see Britannica in the arena most interesting. Because what would it have been like as a woman 
you know, all women across all social classes had limited agency. They were not regarded as sort of physically imposing or powerful or uh, or inspiring in any way. And you're watching a woman, you know, a powerful woman fight to the death. And yeah, maybe you don't find that laughable. Maybe that inspires a different type of feeling. So for me, that scene is probably one of the most important in the whole trilogy as to how Amara and the other female spectators respond to seeing Britannica fight. And, you know, Britannica will have a cameo in the next book I'm writing, Boudicca's Daughter, which is set a long time, you know, a good 20 years almost prior to uh, the wolf den. She's a child, so it's a cameo. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I guess, you know, Britannica is a character that belongs in the future of my writing as well as in this trilogy. And I was very conscious, particularly as the trilogy progress but even right from the beginning that those stories would have been wholly different if they'd have been told not from Amara's point of view I mean the trilogy from Britannica's point of view would be absolutely alien in comparison it would be wholly different we see people through Amara's limited and often very prejudiced lens so you know in the first book in particular although she's not as prejudiced against Britannica as the others she does see her as a kind of savage she admires her but she doesn't she still sees her as lesser in some ways or as stupider because she speaks a foreign language and, you know, she's very culturally different. And then we've got Victoria, who, you know, if the trilogy had been told through her point of view, it would have been a tragic love story about Felix. And also, you know, Amara is quite a snob in how she views Victoria. Amara is also a snob in how she views Britannica. Like, Britannica refuses to bend or break. And it's one of those things where every time Amara is like, I don't understand. Like, Britannica grasps the language. She understands what's going on. But she refuses to, like, budge, which is a very, like, very Taurus, very stubborn way of being. And uh, and I love it. Like, I love that about her. And she also physically is imposing enough to get away with it in some ways that the other women aren't. Yeah, I mean, Britannica is just, like, is a, is a model of total refusal to engage in cultural norms. She won't do it, it, whatever the cost. I think one of the reasons I didn't make Britannica the main character is because that type of courage is unbelievably unusual. You know, most of us are not Britannicas. It's, it's an incredibly rare personality type to be that militantly authentic to your own self. Although she does eventually drink the gladiator Kool-Aid, and I do love that about her as well. She does drink the gladiator Kool-Aid and she makes them her brothers, for sure. She embraces that aspect, but it's more in alignment with who she is than the other stuff. But yes, absolutely. But then again, you know, all of us, to some degree, conform to the society we're in. You know, we have any other way of looking at life, really. But I, I love that Amara, like, I love how imperfect Amara is. She's a little snobby. She, you know, she has her own chip on her shoulder from being a doctor's you know daughter to sold into the position she's in which is entirely justified in that area like i mean at least being upset about that and i do think her and victoria are very much antagonistic against each other at different points for very good reasons because amara is very she's very much able to see through certain things that victoria whether or not she sees she doesn't want to accept because i do find like Amara's relationship with Dido is very different, and even her relationship with um, Berenice is also incredibly different. And I don't think she looks down on her as much as she does Victoria in some ways, and obviously Cressa. Yes, that's really interesting you say that. So I think that Amara has a more generous view of Berenice than Victoria does, actually. 
So it's pretty cruel to Berenice in the world's den in the way that she hates her, which turns out to be she's mocking her for something that Victoria herself does even worse. <laughs> to have idolised an unsuitable man, to be in love with an unsuitable man. I mean, Victoria could not have picked anyone more unsuitable. You know, but maybe all of us are prone to do that to an extent. You look down or, well, hopefully I try not to look down on anyone. It's not really an impulse I have because I think we're all incredibly flawed, me included. But, you know, we sometimes dislike or are conscious of or confronted by flaws in people that reflect our own. So that's definitely going on with Victoria and Berenice. Whereas for Amara is able to see that Berenice has a very good heart. And so she's more sympathetic to her, I think, in, in many ways. I also think they're incredibly young. Like there's a lot of things I looked down on people for doing when I was Amara's age. And I love seeing as she's grown in the trilogy, you know, she's still, I feel like she's still in her 20s, but she's got the soul of a 45 year old who's seen it all, you know? And I love that about her so much because like she's, she's still very young. You know, she's, she's young and making decisions that I would not have been capable of making in my early 20s because I was a mess. But she's, you know, she also knows that she's reaching the end of some of her high powered earning or she's in the very peak of it, you know, and she's she's very, very shrewd and competent and capable. And I think what she sees in other people sometimes is they're not as shrewd as she is. They're not. They think that they can just keep doing this forever. Amara is one of life's true survivors. And it's one of the reasons some people find her difficult as a character. It's one of the reasons I love her. But she has that that great insight. It's something that we learn as we get older and some people have it to a greater degree than others to sort of step outside of yourself, to look at your life and see, you know, in the wolf den, she can't keep just living day to day. She will die like Cressa or like Fabia if she doesn't do something to get out. Whereas, you know, for many of us, just surviving day to day is all we can manage. We don't have the motivation to try and do more. And, you know, I think most of us in our lives it's a mix of the two. So sometimes we day to day, sometimes we'll have a bit more vision for ourselves or a bit more confidence or motivation. And I think, you know, some people were annoyed by Amara in book two, because her thinking is more short term in that in that she wants emotional fulfillment. But for me, in many ways, that was what I wanted to do with that character. Because I think trauma, the impact that it has is not to make you ever more powerful, but it makes you more vulnerable, actually. It leaves you with an emotional void that you need to find some way of coping with. And, you know, in Amara's case, it's by forming a romantic relationship, which is not an uncommon way. I mean, it's, it's essentially what Victoria does, but with a much less agreeable subject than Philos. I do think that Amara and Philos are, they're very good for, they bring out good things in each other. They're both very future focused, but also they, they understand their position and who they are and what they want, and how this world works, and what they can give to each other in a way that, you know, <laughs> poor Victoria, she just makes bad choices. She's just completely ruled by her emotions. Um, many of us are, you know. So we've mentioned what you're working on next. Are you allowed to talk about it on the podcast? Yeah, so the next book is Boudicca's Daughter, which I'm researching and sort of planning out at the moment. And I guess a bit like the eruption in uh, the Temple of Fortuna, Boudicca's revolt happens kind of midway, if not even earlier. I haven't finished plotting in the book, so not as we might expect. And so a lot of that book will be looking at the aftermath of that. So it is very much focused on 
the daughter, uh, but without giving too much, you know, she had two daughters, but it's focused on one of the daughters and without giving too much away. It's I'm moving away from one point of view. That book will have multiple points of view. Well, that's certainly the plan at the moment. I guess it's it's different from the Wolf Den in the sense that, you know, it's got the historical record, a historical character in the form of Boudicca or her nemesis, Paulinus, the general in uh, Britain. But these are still figures who we don't know that much about. Certainly in the case of the daughters, we know next to nothing about. So it's it's a kind of, yeah, I mean, they're more on the Pliny side than the Julius Caesar side in terms of what we actually know. Again, Boudicca is more like Julius Caesar in the fact that she's incredibly famous but we don't have like a million and one sources about her with like wildly conflicting accounts. <laughs> you know, it's quite contradictory. So she's a monster in Cassius Dio and very noble in Tacitus. And then there's the historical record itself of did she actually commit a genocide, for instance? So, yeah, lots going on there. And Paulinus, you know, is another interesting character to me um, in terms of you know, how one might portray him. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Quite daunted as well. And then the aftermath will, you know, I've got much more free reign to decide what happens. I'm sure we'll have you back to talk about Boudicca's daughter because, you know, my heart beats for Boudicca. She's a problematic fave, but you know, we have so many. (laughs) I'm really curious to hear your take on her and also Cardamandua, who won't be in that book, I'm sure, but I just want to ask you about Oh, well, you I'm not going to say too much, but you might be a happy woman then. (laughs) I love it if she's in it. (laughs) Where can people find you on social media should they want to rave about your books or just connect with you and rave about your books or just tell you how much they love your books? If you're going to be mean, don't connect with people. That's where I'm at with my life now. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. So I've got a website, ledharper.com, which has, you know, I, I blog on there about Pompeii um, from time to time. And, uh, you know, also there are sort of like historic posts on there about the books and the inspiration for them. Um, and I'm on Instagram as L Harper, um, which is also very much a books account. So, you know, all about Rome and my research and my writing and things that I find fascinating about the Roman world. And the books, the Temple of Fortuna is out in the UK on the 9th of November and in the US on the 14th of November. So simultaneous publication. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been absolutely amazing. Oh, it's been really such a pleasure to talk to you both. As always, I just really enjoy this. It's great. (laughs) Always. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening and we will see you next week.